Welcome to Commercial Conversations Over Coffee, the show where two college dropouts turned real estate millionaires discuss all aspects of commercial real estate investing. Now, welcome your hosts, Tyler Cobble and apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and start this show off with a bang. Bruce, I'm buying an 87 Lincoln limo and hiring a driver. <laughs> what the hell? Why an 87 Lincoln? We oh, why not? I was in high school. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Why not? So <laughs> it's funny. This um, I've been on a kick here recently of like, how efficient can I make myself with my time? And one of my buddies has an 87 Lincoln limo that he bought just to go out and have fun with. And we were, um, I took a picture and shared it on my Instagram one day. And I was like, selling the Tesla and, and getting this. What do you guys think? You know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm basically uh, going to get this restored. I'm going to hardwire an old telephone in there and I'm going to show up to deals like this. And it was like a complete joke. And of course, like everybody started DMing me. They were like, do it, do it, do it. You won't, you won't. And so I was like, you know what? I, I brought it up to Mark and we started talking about it. And I was like, okay, well, if we get all of the electrics, electronics and everything that I need, we get Wi-Fi in the back and I hire a driver. You know, you can pay a driver 30, you know, $15 an hour, $18 an hour. So that's what, $31,000, $35,000 a year. Then that means that I get back, you know, probably an hour to three hours a day of sitting in the back of a car, which means I can do one to three hours more work, which means if I close one more deal, it pays for itself. It pays for itself. Exactly. So are you watching a million dollar listing LA and see the old, the old cars that flag drives? Is that what, is that what has you going? No, I actually, uh, it's funny. Um, I never, I never watch TV. But uh, the first thing I thought of was Ryan Serhant, you know, because he's he's had his driver forever. And I mean, it just honestly just makes sense. It's kind of funny, like, but I, and, and I like the 87 Lincoln part of it. Like it's it's unpretentious. It's pretty East Nashville, honestly. And it's you know, it's it's a classic. It's not like I'm bu going out and buying a Hummer limo and just showing up to <laughs> to tours. It'd be a little ridiculous. That's what you should do. You should get a, oh my gosh. a limo with a hot tub in the back and a stripper pole and all kinds of stuff. Does it come with the strippers? Uh, okay, wrong wrong topic, wrong <laughs> podcast. <laughs> my wife's in the other room. <laughs> hey, you brought it up, man. You brought well, it up. Stripper pole. You you went. To what does that imply? What is it? You use a stripper pole. Like I is that on a stripper pole? Oh Are yeah, that's that's fair. Is that your uh, is I that your cho your choice it. of workout? <laughs> yeah, I've we have pictures of me dancing on a stripper pole in a party limo. Oh my gosh, that's right. Well, hey, you should you should just leak those photos yourself because then no one else can ever you know say anything bad. It's like exactly. can't take this guy down. Yeah, yeah. We should. Uh, I mean, hey, we are in Nashville. Maybe I should get like an F three fifty stretch. That's there the way go. to go. Yeah, put I'm some. In Texas, uh, you would have to get steer horns on the front. Somehow. I was gonna say you got to put some long horns on the front. Yep. That'd be awesome. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited about that. It's been, it's been fun talking about like how, how much that will, that will add to what we're doing. So anyway, how you yeah. doing? Dude, I'm good. We're cold. It's about to get down to almost zero degrees in Austin, Texas, which for us is ridiculously cold. It's like decades old cold snap. You know, it, it, I don't remember it getting this cold 
almost at all maybe i mean i'm sure it has i've been here for i've been in texas oh, about 48 years i've been in austin for a little over 30 but i don't remember anything this cold so we're just trying to stay warm we've got ice on everything um so it it's good but yeah we're we're definitely sheltered in place now how is that even possible zero degrees i mean that's the i guess that's the ice storm that they're talking about is coming up this way right yeah, and again, we're close. The last update I saw, we're looking at four or five degrees. What you get in for Austin is just insanely cold. We almost, we don't get into the 20s very often. We'll get, get there a few times a year. Below the 20s, maybe once every five or 10 years, but now we're going to be getting close to zero, it sounds like. So, yay, I'm about out of firewood, <laughs> so I need to go buy some more firewood. I love burning fires. I'm oh, yeah. Fire, fire, fire. But uh, I'm just about <laughs> firewood right now, so I got to go get some more. Well, I mean, I'm jealous of that, man, because you guys have mesquite, which nothing smells quite like a mesquite fire in the winter. I mean, that's it. it that literally, it just reminds me of being a child and going and visiting my dad on the on the farm. It, it's that's a great wood. Yeah, I love burn fires, and one benefit to Amazon in my life now, we get packages all the time, like everybody does. It, I get. Uh, sent the best kindling in the world you know there's all kinds of good packing material i try not to burn anything with colors anything that's a foil kind of reflective thing but if it's just plain cardboard or cardboard packing or some of that egg crate kind of packing not the not the peanut stuff that's styrofoam but man i get all kinds of kindling so you know another benefit of ordering on amazon <laughs> Welcome to the Bruce and Tyler Variety Show, where we talk about 87 Lincolns, strippers, firewood, and real estate occasionally. <laughs> right. So let's, let's bring this back to topic before we get into our actual topic today. Something happened right before we got on that um, I got reached out to. We got reached out to by somebody that we've been helping. You know, they are a client of ours. And uh, so it's not altruism, right? We're not helping just to be helping. But, you know, we're doing the best job we can for these guys. Uh, they've got a great project. They're good people. You know, they're just, you know, maybe it's time for them to move on for whatever reason. And they reached out to us and said, hey, you know, you've been great for us. You've done more than a normal management company would for us. Uh, you've been invaluable to us. We're thinking about maybe offloading this deal a little sooner than we thought. But uh, you guys have any interest? So by providing value to others, yes, we're getting compensated as a management company, but trust me, we're doing tremendously more than a typical management company would because we like these guys. Yeah. And again, they are clients, so we just want to we want to always go above and beyond. So this may have, you know, created a business opportunity for us outside of the management company. So, you know, treat every uh, every relationship like it's gold because it could be even if it's not the best relationship in the world try to preserve it try not to burn bridges um you know take care of those uh, those connections because you never know how they're going to turn out yeah that's a pretty big deal right i mean we're getting first look at an apartment building in nashville because of that and i think that you know it's uh it, Honestly, it, this this kind of case happens all the time, right? I mean, it's it's basically a project that was just too large, and they thought they could take it on, and and um, hadn't done anything like it before. And the great idea, I mean, we love the idea. That's why we're very interested in buying the project. But um, because we we took it the right way and we handled it the right way, yeah. I mean, we're we're getting a great opportunity. It's you know, I tell everybody like property managers, brokers, and title agents. They are the underworld of commercial real estate. They know everything going on before anybody else does. So if you're in any of those three industries, make sure you're building relationships because that, that can be invaluable. 
you know, see the intangible side of it that, you know, we started a management company because we wanted to control our own destiny when it came to property management. That's ultimately why we started it. But then we started the third party manage for other people. And then that is generating extra revenue streams for us. But the biggest thing there for me professionally is it gives me more opportunity to grow the organization, the ability to hire more and better people, and then to promote the people from within that are in our company that deserve it. So we're trying to provide upward mobility for the folks that want it within our organization. But again, this side benefit now, it sounds like, you know, there's a decent shot at being able to pick this deal up. It We might not be able to come to terms and it's totally fine, but it's just the thought that, you know, it's been presented to us. And that probably, in fact, that wouldn't have happened had we not had our own management company. No, no, it definitely wouldn't have happened. I mean, we, you know, we were in, in the right spot at the right time. And it's because, you know, we, we kind of advised these guys before they acquired the property. Um, they ended up hiring another uh, property management company before we were brought in just because they wanted something that was more established in Nashville. You know, we have, uh, you know, what, 1,100 units under management right now, but it's Bruce's portfolio in Austin. And so, it, you know, it's our first multifamily deal in Nashville. So understandably, we probably would have gone with somebody else too. Uh, but we were always there, willing to help, and at no cost. I mean, every time they had any questions, they they called me, and uh, you know, we talked about it. You mentioned something earlier that I want to bring up: income streams. How many income streams do you think you have? Oh, good lord! Um, let's see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. We're probably about fourteen to fifteen income streams. I love that you were like, oh, good Lord. Uh, I have no idea. Let me sit here and count how many income streams I have. You know, that's one of those things that when you're first getting started in in the industry, you don't fully appreciate how, you know, because you're like, I got to go get a job. I've got to, I got to make money. Right. But I mean, you and I make, I mean, I don't have 14 or 15. I've probably got seven or nine, but that means that, you know, if I lose one job, job in quotes, I have other ways of making money. I'm not fully reliant on that one direction. I mean, that's that's incredibly important as a real estate investor. Right. I actually forgot about all the education and the book sales and stuff. So, you know, those aren't really large, but they they still, they're accretive, right? They add to my bottom line. So I'm probably closer to 20, but, and I'm going to mess this one up, I'm sure. It's either the average billionaire or the average millionaire has seven income streams, seven sources of income. Again, you know, the who was it? Uh, not Dana Carvey, um, Dumb and Dumber. Who was that? Uh, Carrie, Jim Carrey. You know, one of his big commencement speeches, he talked about how, you know, his dad got laid off of a very stable job after 20 to 25 years. He never wanted to take any chances. He wanted the safe life. He got laid off from being, I think he was an accountant. He was an accountant. After yeah. 20, yeah. After 20 to 25 years. And he's thinking, whoa, what happened? This was the safe path right this was the conservative path that nothing could go wrong i'm working for somebody else i can't lose my company yeah think about that you know and so his quote was something along the lines of you can fail at doing crap you hate you may as well try something you love get out there and i talk about this crap all the time and people are probably tired of hearing it but you know it's okay um but again the average millionaire or billionaire has seven or more income streams so to your point, if I lose a property, you know, I sell a property that is, or, you know, I don't have any construction income for a while because maybe COVID shuts everything down. I, 
I still have lots of other things contributing to our income. I'm getting book sales because I wrote a book. I'm getting in, uh, educational uh, court sales because we've got our own e educational platform online. So, yeah, every time you turn around, there's another small piece coming in. Um, those small pieces add up to very, very large pieces, but it, it keeps us diversified some somewhat and it keeps us financially sound. Yeah. I, I mean, let's let's break down one deal. Right. So, you know, on my end, I own a commercial real estate brokerage. They typically source our deals. Bruce and I own the property management company together and then I own a development company. So we go in and we buy a deal. The cobble group gets paid a commission. We may or may not take an acquisition fee as the asset managers. We typically don't. Sometimes there are cases where we will. We get paid an asset management fee. We get paid a property manager fee through the property management company, Parasol. If it is a development, I get paid a development fee. If there are any, if there's any leasing, there's leasing commissions. There's another fee there. If there's a disposition, there's probably a sales commission to the brokerage. There's probably a dispo fee to the asset managers. I mean, is there anything else that I'm missing on one? I'm sure there is on one deal. I mean, look at all those different ways to make money on one deal. Well, right. And, you know, I don't want people to hear that and go, you greedy bastards, right? They're all legit. It's just the way this industry works. All of those fees still get the end investor, the limited partner, that you still get the return that those people are looking for. So it's not like we're doing anything weird. Uh, we're not trying to take advantage. We're not gouging anybody. It's the way the industry works. And you know, you're talking about all these other ways that you have to monetize these deals through your brokerage, us through our management company, um, and the asset management company. Well, you just have to be upfront about that. Right. So when we do a new deal, when we bring a new investment to market, part of the explaining how it's going to work is we divulge all the different, uh, you know, potential conflicts of interest. We say that, look, an affiliate company of ours will do the management. An affiliate company of ours will do the asset management. An affiliate company of ours will do the construction management. We put it all on the table for yep. you. I'm sure you disclose that, look, I will be uh, the broker on this deal. So I'll get a small commission on it, but it, we disclose all that. So that way all of our investors have all the information they need to make the right decision. If I present them with a 15% return and their threshold is only 10, but they're not really comfortable with the fact that my management company is going to manage the investment we're in together and you get a commission from buying and selling, you know, they might not feel comfortable with that. And that's totally okay. You know, yeah. that's going to happen. This deal People isn't for them. Exactly. But you got to put it out there. Be upfront. Be transparent. Don't hide anything because eventually that stuff's probably going to come out in some way anyways. Hey, you know, I think we need to fire the management company because they're not doing a good job. Uh, I should have told you I am the management company. <laughs> that's stuff me. Like that could come <laughs> up. Yeah, it could come up. Right. So just yeah. be careful and, and divulge everything. But yeah, it, that's. That's one of the beauties of this. Now, most people get into what we're doing and they'll just take their promote and be happy with that because the promote, that's pretty substantial. But, you know, they don't want really all the other headache because really the, the management company piece of it is the most difficult part of all of it in my world. Now, I'm learning development with you on our first two deals here, but, you know, that that's probably just as difficult or maybe even more so than the, the management company. But a traditional person that is being taught how to do syndications the hardest part of all the deal is the day-to-day -day operation. So most people don't want to deal with it. Totally fine. It's just there are multiple ways you can monetize these things, though. Yeah, and the day-to-day -day operations is is just as important as buying right. 
Because if you come in and you operate the investment poorly, it doesn't matter how great of an investment it is, you could still lose your ass. You know, and one thing too, I mean, we charge market rates on all these fees because somebody's got to do the leasing, somebody's got to do the property management. And, you know, we do have in there like, look, if the property management's not performing, we will fire ourselves and we will hire somebody else because as asset managers and investors in the deal, it makes sense for us to hire the best group for the project. And, you know, it'd be, it would be a conflict of interest if we kept ourselves, like we would actually be forcing ourselves to lose money if we just were like, no, we're going to keep doing it. it. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the thing is too, like I said, we're going to have to hire somebody to do this anyway. If you're an architect and you're syndicating your own deals, guess what? You can take an architectural fee, right? Because you're going to be giving yourself the business to do the deal anyway. If you're a general contractor, you're going to get paid to do the GC work on that project. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like we don't own an HVAC company, but somebody's going to get paid to do the HVAC, right? So those fees are going somewhere. It's not like these are just fees that we're creating out of nowhere. I mean, they're, they're all typical in these deals. Right. So that, that brings up a point that a lot of people get into this industry uh, on the syndicating side. They're like, oh, you know, the deal doesn't work. But if I'm going to be the management company, so to speak, so I just won't charge myself, I won't charge the company a management fee for me, right? Well, oh, that's fine. That That's great. But to Tyler's point now, let's say you get in over your head and you think, oh, I don't have the bandwidth to do this. I'm not as qualified as I thought maybe I would be. I, I, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh-oh. Well, I didn't underwrite paying somebody a 3 to 5 maybe 10% management fee. That's so a problem. What do you want to do? It's going to crush your returns if you didn't account for it. So you need to pay yourself for the legitimate roles you're uh, you're providing to the company. But like you said, they need to be market rate. Don't don't gouge the property for one thing. If in that market your 48 or 50 unit property would typically be a four to five percent management fee, if you went to another company to do it, don't charge your partnership 10 percent because you can't. That's that's a bullshit thing to do. It will come back to bite you. Somebody will figure it out eventually, I bet. And you're going to look like a greedy, uh, I almost said a bad word. You're going to look like a very <laughs> greedy person, and it's not going to end well. So charge market rates. Don't gouge people. But charging market rates also means don't charge a lower than market rate because again if i become mentally incapacitated something happens to my management company i have to shut it down for some reason let's say well i have to be able to go hire somebody and if i haven't allotted enough money for that management company fee well now our returns are going to get hit so that was a really good point you made yeah you'll be in a lot of a lot of trouble yep and you know the way the way that i always approach these type of scenarios is okay if i'm having to give a deposition one day and in front of the SEC, and they asked me, was I looking out for my investors' best interests? If you come in and you charge a 10% property management fee, or you charge 10% leasing fees, or whatever, anything that's well above market, how are you going to be able to sit there and honestly say, I was looking out for my investors' best interests? I mean, at the end of the day, that is number one. Right? Like, I mean, there are, there are plenty of projects where I've said, no, I'm actually not the best representative to do the the real estate side of things. Like when I did my the 42 unit townhome development, I did not want to touch the sales. I didn't want to touch it because I do commercial real estate, right? I do not do residential real estate. I have no idea how that side of things works. I mean, I do, I've got an idea, but like there's a lot of details that I don't know and I wouldn't be good at it. 
And so, of course, when we went into that project, we hired a whole other team, a residential-specific team, to come in and do that project. So it's good to keep that in mind, too, that you know, just because you can collect the fees doesn't mean that you always should if it's not in your investor's best interests. I agree with that completely. So what's our topic today? I forget. <laughs> so today we are talking about how much capital should you actually raise for your deals? So we've talked about raising capital. We've talked about syndication. You know, one thing um, when Bruce and I first got started working together, he was he was showing me how to underwrite deals. And, you know, me being the, the green kid that I was at the time, uh, I thought, oh, you know, here's a $1 million deal. The bank needs 20% down. You just need 200 grand and you can get it. And that is not quite the case. So let's talk about how much capital you actually need to raise, one, and two, how much you need to over-raise because things happen. And so I think it's really important to approach it from both ways. So Bruce, when you're, when you're approaching your deals, let's say it's a multifamily deal and it's value add. Because that's probably the most common. Who look at whipping out the pen, man? Here to make sure I don't miss any steps. <laughs> so let's say you're doing a value add commercial deal because I would imagine most of our listeners are probably along that vein, right? They're they're looking at value add commercial properties. So let's talk about I guess one lender requirements. What would a lender? What would, what can you expect from a lender in terms of a down payment? And then what are you going to actually bring to the table? I mean, how much cash do you need to close? Um, and then let's let's cover some of the other expenses that you'll need as well. Okay, so I'll break it down. There are five main things to talk about. I mean, four main things to talk about here and what goes into your cash raise. And I just wrote an article about it on LinkedIn. So look me up, Bruce Peterson on uh, SEN on LinkedIn. I saw um, that. If you don't catch all this. Yeah, so, well, it's a big I don't know if it's a big problem, but it's a big misunderstanding. I'll have people do exactly what you did. Well, you know, how do I raise the the 20% down payment I need for this million dollar purchase? First of all, you need a hell of a lot more than that. So yeah, uh, I thought it was important to write it down. I mean, uh, write the article, but so you're gonna have down payment, rehab, operating capital, which will consist of true operating capital and uh, uh, negative carry. A lot of people don't think about negative carry, but I'm going to break all these things down. But then you also have closing costs. Let's, let's also let's also break down because I didn't I didn't understand this right because I came from the the commercial world. In multifamily, you have uh, what is it um, financed construction expenses and non financed construction expenses, or what do you, what do you call them? Non capitalized. Right. Yeah. Yep. So we're going to break all these down. So let's start with the down payment, right? So everybody thinks that's all I need. Now, that's not all you need, first of all, but it, it is going to be the biggest portion of what you need almost always. If you have a huge value add project that you're going to spend tons and tons and tons of money on rehabbing, okay, it might end up running more, but it's almost always going to be the biggest chunk uh, devoted to down payment. So very simply, we all know this, right? If you're going to go out and get a million dollar loan to buy a property, well, you're going to have to come up with 20% down on average um, to buy like a single family rent home. Well, you have the exact same thing going on when you buy an apartment complex. You're gonna get a, a million dollar loan and the bank is gonna say, look, I'll give you the loan, but you have to have some skin in the game. So I'm not gonna finance the entire project to you. You have to come out of pocket some equity and it's usually gonna be 20 to 40%. In the market that we're in right now, I'm usually seeing 25 to 35%. So let's call it 30%. 
Um, back when I got started, you could almost always get a 20% down payment loan, which is called a 20, an 80 LTV, loan to value, right? So you would get 80% loan proceeds on the purchase, so you'd have to come out of pocket 20%. Again, today's market, I'm seeing more along the lines of 30%. That will vary based on the area of the country, the lender you use, your background as an owner, your track record, your balance sheet, your credit score. There's a lot that goes into that. So if there are two people going for the same type of loan on the same property, but one guy has a 350 credit score, or whatever the lowest is, first of all, they're probably not going to qualify. So that's probably a bad example. But let's say they have a 600 credit score and I have an 800. I'm probably going to get a better loan, which could mean less money down. It's probably going to definitely affect the interest rate. But there are things that are going to affect how much come uh, that you have to come out of pocket for this down payment. And a lot of it is, is variable. So what I'm seeing on average, though, right now is 30 percent. So that's the down payment. That's that first piece. So why would you see such a why? I mean, because the difference in 20 and 30 percent is a lot of money. Why do you think that you're seeing closer to 30 percent down payments right now? Because prices have gone up dramatically. So they are still willing to lend on these deals, but since they've gotten so expensive, your loan proceeds usually are going to be constrained by what's called your DSCR, which is your debt service coverage ratio. What that is, is it says your top line profit, right? Your NOI, net operating income. That's all of your operating income minus all of your operating expenses, whatever's left over. That's called your NOI or your net operating income. That profit needs to be substantial enough for the bank or the lender to feel comfortable lending you money. Most bankers, most lenders, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, regional banks, they're going to have about a 125 DSCR right now, meaning if I'm going to have a loan payment for the year of $100,000, now it's going to be paid monthly, but let's say your, your annual debt service, your principal and interest is $100,000. If you have to hit a 125 DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, you have to have $125,000 in profit for that year to be able to support that loan payment is what they're thinking. I'm going to close some of my tabs here. I'm freezing on my video. Um, so that's going to be a lot of the, the determining factor as to how much they're willing to lend to you. It's all about profit. The more you're willing to pay for that profit, the lower the uh the lower the the loan to value will be so the the less percent they're willing to lend to you on that given project because you're paying more for the same profit so the more yep. you pay for that profit the more it's going to impact your dscr and the more it's going to impact your loan proceeds which then will drive up your down payment that's the biggest determining factor that i see now you're going to have differences within asset classes too meaning um, you know, an A property, B property, C property, D property. Um, the higher up you go, the more you're gonna have to pay up for that same profit because there's less risk. So you're gonna have to come up with a larger down payment on those. And that makes sense. I mean, most commercial or multifamily loans are not just a, hey, we'll give you a 75% LTC. It's, you know, no, it's 75% LTC or a 1.25X, you know, DSCR, whichever's lower. Um, that way that they cap out how much money they're going to be giving you and making sure that they're still protected. So that's probably why that that's starting to pop up. That makes sense. You're paying more for the same income because cap rates have gotten so compressed. Right. 
and banks still want to make sure that they are protected enough so that if, if they have to foreclose on you, they can flip the property and make their money back and hopefully make a profit. Exactly. So let's talk about something you threw out there, LTC. I said LTV, right? So there is a difference. What is the difference? It's not, they're not synonymous. They're not the same. LTC is loan to cost. LTV is loan to value. The loan to value means I'm going to pay $10 million to buy a property. I want to get an 80% loan to buy that property. That's a loan to the value of the property. It's a loan to value. A loan to cost will mean what is the cost to buy that property? You have the purchase price. You have rehab. They may be willing to roll into the loan. They may even be able to roll in your closing costs. Those are all the costs to buy that property. The value of the property that you're buying is $10 million. Once you add in all your costs, maybe it's a $12 million cost to buy that $10 million asset. So there's, that's where the LTC comes in. If you have a, an 80 LTC, that is different than an 80 LTV. I just wanted to make sure people understood that. Yeah, they're, they're very different. Um... And I think that it depends on the kind of asset that you're playing in, right? Like if you're doing a heavy value add, which is where that's the sandbox that I tend to play in, you know, we're focused on LTC because banks are not going to be able to value the property, uh, you know, any higher because they, there's more risk, right? So they want to make sure that they're more protected. So they'll do a loan to cost instead of a loan to value. If you're buying a stabilized asset that has income coming in, they'll do more of an LTV because maybe you just happen to get a really good deal on something and it's actually more valuable than what you're paying for it. So, uh, it, you know, they also have lower risk, right? It's it, At the end of the day, it's all about the risk profile. Exactly. You know, and so what we're so we've pretty much covered loan to value, uh, you know, the down payment, all that pretty, pretty thoroughly. So the next piece of it, is going to be your closing costs. And I like to run closing costs and startup costs together because not everything that to me goes in this bucket. And really it doesn't matter what bucket you put these different pieces in, you just have to make sure you account for them. But my startup costs would be your, your typical closing costs. It would be the loan application fee if you have one, Fannie and Freddie always have a loan application fee, but not all local banks will have those. You'll have a loan origination fee. You'll have points maybe if you're used to points in the uh, single family world. You know, those are your closing costs. The things that I actually add in there also are all the fees paid to uh, my personal uh, my personal attorneys. I have a real estate attorney. I have a syndication attorney because I'm doing these as syndications. Those are part of the closing cost slash startup costs. I also roll in the due diligence inspections. If you have um, somebody come out to inspect the roofs and they charge you for that, that's part of that. Uh, you'll have those guys, the, uh, the foundation company will usually charge you, the wood destroying insects company will charge you, the pool inspector may charge you, the plumbing company will probably charge you. So I put all that in there. I also put all of my utility deposits in that bucket and uh, my prepaid insurance, right? Because usually you'll have to come up with one year's prepaid insurance. So that's what goes into that number. On average, you know, I usually see three to 4% uh, on that. The larger you go, a lot of those fees are fixed. So the higher your purchase price on the same fixed cost for some of these items, the lower your percentage overall for the closing costs will be. So the deals that I'm buying are usually $20 million around that range. So I'm going to pay about one to 2% for my closing and startup costs. 
I think a good rule of thumb, your first one out of smaller property is probably going to be about three to four percent. It could be as high as five or six percent if you're buying a five to maybe a 10 unit property. But that's what the the operate. I mean, I'm sorry, the re good guide, the closing costs are. <laughs> We've talked about the down payment, 20 to 30 percent. In this market, I'm usually seeing 30 percent closing costs. If you're going to kind of try to pull up a rule of thumb, could be higher or lower, but the rule of thumb I would use is probably 3%. On, is that on closing costs or is that on just all other expenses? No, that's closing costs and startup costs. Okay. So would you consider that your pursuit costs? Like you throw that in as... Well, no, not really, because that's for the people that charge acquisition fees. That's what that's for. The acquisition fee is to cover the pursuit costs, meaning, you know, you might have to fly around the country to do a few tours. You might tour, you know, 10 different properties and have some pursuit costs trying to get those properties bought before you get that last one finally closed on. So I don't really put my uh, pursuit costs there. Those just those are just uh, costs out of my pocket. I don't do anything with those. If I wanted to try to be reimbursed for those, I could. Obviously, it's it's a legitimate thing, and most people will do it. But that's why most people charge acquisition fees, and I haven't. I don't charge acquisition fees. So you don't have the company reimburse you for any of your pursuit costs. Like if you, I mean, obviously, like surveys, environmental, that kind of stuff, you're having the company reimbursed. But you're just saying like travel and stuff like that. You don't. You don't have travel my time spent underwriting things like that. No, I don't charge for that. What I do charge for, yes, you know, I have to put up, I personally as a syndicator will put up the 1% earnest money fee. I'll be reimbursed for that. Well, I'm not going to be reimbursed for that. That's going to get rolled into the purchase price of the property. Um, but all and the that's, other fees. You know, on a deal like this, that's 200 grand, right? 20 million, that's yes. $200,000 that you have to be prepared to come out of pocket for. Exactly. But the reimbursable ones would be the syndication attorney. Um, if you have to pay up front because you don't have a relationship with your real estate attorney, well, you'll have to front that also. So there are a lot of these fronted fees, all the due diligence inspections, which could easily run you three to $5,000. That's an upfront fee that's going to come out of my pocket as the syndicator. But yes, I will be reimbursed for those once we close the deal, the, uh, all the money's in the bank account. We close the deal, then I submit invoices. I can't get reimbursed if I can't present invoices or receipts, but I will present them bookkeeping will then cut a check back to me for all the fronted costs because those costs truly are the costs to the company right but since i was in a money raise situation i didn't have the funds raised that i could just deploy for all these things so i had to cover them out of my own pocket and Do be reimbursed yeah i mean i'm sure steph is going to make sure that you're turning in your receipts and yep. being a diligent asset manager so Pursuit costs, I mean, as a percentage, I mean, what would you say is, I mean, obviously it's going to depend because you'll have some, as a percent on a smaller deal, you'll have higher pursuit costs than you would on a $20 million deal. So you're coming out of pocket 1% on the earnest money. You're going to spend 15 to 20 grand on a syndication attorney. You yep. could end up spending 10 to 15 grand, maybe more on a real estate attorney, depending on what kind of project it is. Um, you know, that's that's one and a half percent give or take, if we're looking at a $20 million deal, you know, you've probably got another, I'd say, I don't know, 50 grand in miscellaneous. So maybe we're closer to, I don't know, would you say 2% is probably a good number to look at as far as the whole overall global pursuit costs? You can based on the way you broke it down. Yes. But remember the earnest money is not a cost. The earnest money is part of the right. purchase price that you have to put up up front. So the way you did it, rolling it all together, yeah, you're looking at about 2% probably. That's fair. 
But if you strip out the earnest money, because again, that just gets rolled into the purchase price, right. you're probably closer to one percent. Yeah, I'm just trying to help a you know somebody who's never done their first deal. You know, they're they're trying to figure out how much capital they have to raise for their project, but also like how much do I have to come out of pocket to do this to make this happen first? Exactly. And give them like okay, so so two percent is probably a good number. So I mean, if you're looking at you know a ten million dollar deal, two hundred grand is probably what you're going to be coming out of pocket for. So if you don't have the cash on hand to outlay $200,000 before you've closed the deal and gotten reimbursed on a portion of that, maybe you need to start smaller um, is, is kind of what I'm getting at. So, you know, when you're going through a cash raise, how much do you overraise? Well, I'll usually do hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, remember, I'm raising six to $8 million on average. So, couple hundred thousand dollars is not that big a deal on a 20 million dollar project so it, it sounds like a ton but it's not that much uh so where i tend to really over raise is in the rehab or the operating capital so those are the two pieces we haven't talked about yet uh but that's where i'll usually over raise to make sure i don't get stuck not having raised enough money so you know we talked about the closing costs the down payment so the next thing with that in mind is we'll talk about the rehab and you brought this up a little bit earlier, but the rehab, you know, that's the money you're going to spend to pretty the place up to take care of some deferred maintenance. It's all the stuff you're going to spend on the property itself after you close. Now, we talked about LTC and LTV. LTC is loan to cost. And multifamily, what we almost always face, if I want to roll rehab dollars into my loan, your lender will usually let you do that, but only for things that are uh, value add. So if they see if you spend this much money on rehab in a value add sense, it will turn into additional profit and value in the property. So it's making the deal safer for them, ultimately, because you're creating more value. They will so not. What, so what is considered value add and what is not considered value add? So curb appeal, um, unit upgrades, parking structures, things like that. Deferred maintenance is the non-value add. So if you have Interesting. a failing paint job, if you have big potholes everywhere, if you have sagging foundations, uh, roofs are in terrible shape, that's deferred maintenance. And it's deferred, meaning that the previous ownership did not take care of the asset. They're not going to lend you money just to make the property proper, if you will, just to bring back up the standard. You know, they're only going to lend you money for the rehab portion that's going to make the property more value, uh, more valuable. So when you have to address the deferred maintenance stuff, that that's not making it more valuable. That's preserving the asset to make sure it doesn't fall to the ground. That's it. That's, so that's really interesting because in commercial real estate, that's considered value add. Uh, you know, if you're if you're coming in and repainting the building and you're redoing the parking lot, like all of that stuff adds value because, I mean. I don't know. I, I would think that that would add value in, in multifamily, but I guess they just don't look at it that way. Right. Now, if you're going to paint only because you don't like the color, well, maybe you could, you know, this this is all an art. It's not a science. There's not right. boxes that you check and there's a book that you go by. You know, that's why you use your lender. Well, I like to use mortgage brokers and we've talked about that before. But so my mortgage broker can go back and say, look, traditionally exterior paint, you're right, is not considered value add. But there's nothing wrong with this paint job. It's actually pristine. There is absolutely zero wood rot on the entire property. They're only painting the property because it's not a current uh, color. It might be 
baby shit green. You know, it might be cute <laughs> green, harvest gold, that kind of thing. And that's not appealing. People don't want to live in an ugly place. So it is pretty amazing how many investors choose colors like that. You, I mean, you look at these buildings, oh, yeah. you're like, what were, what were you thinking? Like you spent money to make the building look like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a concerted effort on your part to make it look ugly. Was that yeah. the goal? How ugly can I make this? Because now it's a challenge to see, can I still lease it up? That's, right. That's like right. Can we still raise <laughs> rents? Let's see. Like, <laughs> yeah, we don't right. need the so, additional challenge. Yeah, so hopefully that helps people understand if it's money being brought if it's money that you have to spend to make to repair the property well again that's deferred maintenance and multifamily they're not going to lend you that money so you're going to have to bring that money in your cash raise so let's say you know between the roof and the foundations and the parking lot all those things it's going to add up to three four hundred thousand dollars well you have to raise that money if it's uh for value-add projects you submit your list of proposed value-add projects with some bids and say, look, this is what I'm going to do to the property after we buy it. It makes the lender very often more willing to lend to you because they see you're willing to put a lot of money into the deal to make it a better project, to lure better and more tenants to it, to make it more profitable. So they're more likely to give you the loan usually, but you know they will lend you for that stuff. They will not lend to you to fix it and to repair the property. It's interesting too when you break down the difference between you know commercial multifamily and then you even get into development. I mean, development you're looking at fifteen to twenty percent down for acquisition and development loans. So they actually wrap in. You know, a development loan is wrapped all around. It takes in everything into account. So acquisition, obviously, so you're buying the dirt and then development. So that's all of your development costs and your construction. Uh, for doing that project. Now, typically for an A and D loan, you're going to be paying a higher interest rate because it's inherently more risky. You are building something from the ground up. Time out. What's up? A and D loan. You got to remember. You got to start. You got to explain this stuff as we go because people. Don't I know said. What the hell you're I said about. acquisition and development. Okay, so A and D means acquisition and development. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so asleep. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You're, you're, hey, you're on your first cup of coffee, so. Um, probably your third, really. So A and D loans, uh, you know, they they typically have a higher interest rate because they are inherently more risky, right? You're you're developing from the ground up. There's no income coming in, and if you know, again, we we go back to the risk profile. If a bank has to step in halfway through a development and take that over, it's it's going to be a lot tougher for them to sell uh, to to the next guy because it can be tough for a developer to just step in and. You know, it's, it's like a lot of contractors don't like finishing somebody else's work because they don't know really where it was left off. And there's there's a whole lot of issues there. Well, but. They have their own vision and they're having to and it, it basically inherit somebody else's vision. They might. Right. Think, That's a stupid idea, but we're too far down the path to, to change now. I can't really pivot anymore. So I get that completely. Yeah, exactly. This, you know, you've, you've already poured the foundations. So if I want to build a, a multifamily apartment complex and you built a sports arena, like, uh, you know, probably not a fit for me. There's very few people that would be willing to step in and, and finish that. Uh, they're also shorter term loans, right? I mean, you can have some A and D loans that that go to perm, uh, which means they they are a permanent, you know, long term loan. Uh, but typically, you don't want that because you're in the, you're a higher interest rate anyway. And so, you know, these loans will be you know. 18 to 24 months, uh, maybe longer. It just depends on how long you think that, I mean, depends on how big the deal is. Uh, but 
you know, you kind of want to get them stabilized and refinanced into long-term debt as quickly as you can, which is what we're planning on doing at the provisionary. Well, you know, we're planning on that being a four-year process. And as soon as that is, well, we're doing construction to perm just so that we don't have to worry about refinancing before there's any income coming in. But as soon as the property is stabilized, we're going to refinance, put better, better debt terms on it, uh, and then hold the property. Right. Yeah. So it, it is a totally different world between uh, multifamily and more of a true commercial, especially when you're dealing with development. So let me finish up on rehab, though. So we yeah. talked about LPC, LTV, what is considered value-add, what is considered deferred maintenance. So let's just say, uh, let me try to give you some parameters and some rules of thumb. A very light rehab in multifamily is going to be somewhere between $1,000 and $3,000 per door. There's not a lot wrong with it. Uh, there's very little deferred maintenance. You don't have a lot of value add stuff that you need to do to it either because maybe the landscaping is pristine. All the signage is great. The, the leasing office has just been remodeled by the previous ownership. So there's not a whole lot to do. For the most part, you take it over, you run it, and you start cash flowing it. Now, when you start to get into like kind of a more mid-range where you, you've got maybe a few things that you need to address on some deferred maintenance, but not a ton. You might have to you know paint the exterior, which... Maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, I just painted uh, two exteriors. One was $200,000. Another one was $125,000. So they can get very, very expensive very quickly, but I'm painting properties with 20 to 30 buildings. So got to keep that in perspective also. But so it's something that maybe you have one major project, but the roofs look good. The parking lot looks good. The foundations look good. And then you're going to raise a little bit of money for some unit upgrades and maybe pretty up some of the landscaping because it's not in bad shape, but there are a few areas that you want to kind of clean up a little bit, make it a little nicer. So now you're looking maybe three to $6,000, maybe seven. Uh, but, you know, that's starting to get on the little, a little of the heavy side. And then if you're going to take over something that is just beat to hell, it's in a bad part of the town, a bad part of town. Maybe it's boarded up. There's tons of deferred maintenance. The previous ownership, maybe they didn't even have a loan on it, so they didn't have a lender standing over them all the time. You need to fix these things on an annual basis. So they just let it go to crap, right? So roofs are in terrible shape. Windows are busted or boarded up. You have potholes everywhere. You have foundations sagging and you know parts of like retaining walls falling over. And you want to reposition the entire property and start rehabbing all the units and spending maybe, you know, three to $5,000 to upgrade a unit to get an extra hundred to $200 in rent. Now you're talking, you know, eight to 10, it could even be as much as 15 to $20,000 per door. Now, where a lot of people get confused too, is they say 15 to $20,000 per door. You mean I'm going to put 15 to $20,000 into each unit? No. It's the total amount of rehab dollars spent divided by the number of units. So some of those rehab dollars are going to go to the very expensive projects of the parking lot, the foundation, the roof, the paint, things like that. So don't get that confused either. That fifteen dollars to $20,000 is not going into the units. It's just that total amount divided by the total number of doors. So again, light, you know, maybe one to 3000 could be four mid-range, um, rehab lift would be four to seven or eight and then really anything eight and above and again there's really no limit to this it could easily be ten to twenty thousand dollars depending on how pretty you want to make it you can over rehab a project remember that too don't over rehab it compared to your market too much because then it's just money that you're not going to get a benefit from but uh so one to four let's say four to eight and then eight and up is a heavy rehab 
Well, so you bring up a good point with the the don't over rehab it. I mean, one thing that I've heard that's like it, it seems to me like an unspoken rule amongst multifamily syndicators is leave meat on the bone for the next guy. Is that something that when you're looking at a project you're you're conscientious of and you go here are you know there's there's ten things that really need to be changed on this property we're going to do five. So yeah, that's that's a really good point because everybody goes, well, that doesn't make any sense. You want it to be as profitable as possible. There are two things going on on every project that you buy. Well, almost everyone. If you plan on holding it for four to seven years, you're telling me you're going to sell it at some point. So you want it to be as profitable as you can, but you also want to sell it for as much as you can. If you upgrade every unit, if you improve every single possible thing that you could, I mean, what's in it for the next guy? There's a good cash stream, cash flow stream, sure, but there's no upside for them because they can't keep you know, upgrading units. You've already upgraded all the units. So my rule of thumb, I don't want to really upgrade more than 40 to maybe 50% of the units on the property, period. And so that's what I'll underwrite. Now, I could go all 100% if I'm going to hold the property for 40 years as a family. Right? We don't have investors. We're going to buy it by ourselves. We don't ever plan to sell this thing. Well, then, yes, I would upgrade everything because I want it to be as profitable as possible, as quickly as possible. But if I have an eye towards sale, you know, in, again, three to five, five to seven, seven to ten years, I need to have some story to tell the potential buyer to say, hey, not only are you buying this income stream, but look at all the extra profit that you can uh, increase this by. Um, so yeah, I won't, I won't rehab every unit at all. Um, I will leave some money on the table because that will benefit me when I go to sell it. Yeah, it makes sense, right? I mean, like I said, meat on the bone. The, the you know the next guy's got to have something that's going to give him a reason to buy your property, right? I mean, if everybody was just buying a a stabilized asset, you'd buy Class A and you just sit there and you do nothing. But you know, there's a reason that these groups come in and they want something to do. It's because they can increase the value to their investors, make their investors more money, and you know, sell and move on to the next project. It's, it's funny. I bet that there are, there are some multifamily groups out there who have owned the same property twice and done different kinds of renovations on it just because of, you know, those properties trade every five to seven years. It's like almost, you know, you could count on it religiously that every five to seven years, these multifamily apartment complexes will come up for sale because that's just the life cycle of these investments. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, over 35 years, you come back to the to the same kind of property. Right. And people, when I tell people that all the time, they're saying, well, why are you teaching me how to do this? Because, you know, there's only, you know, so many in the in the city. Why wouldn't you just want to hold them for yourselves? Well, first of all, I can't buy everything in the city of Austin, right? The city of Austin has about six to 800 properties. So physically, I can't buy them all. But then secondly, exactly what you talked about. They're all going to trade. The average hold time for a multifamily asset is three to five years. And then they always go to me, well, why is that? Why are they always selling? Are there always problems they got to get out? No, it's the business model. There's two reasons usually that's going to dictate how long somebody's going to hold these things. Most of these deals are bought as syndications, almost all of them. It's very rare that you're going to have somebody buy a 50 to 100 or maybe a 400 unit property by themselves. They're usually going to bring in other investors. When you have other investors, the investors eventually want their money back and roll it into another bigger, better property, right? So there's velocity of money. They want to continue to turn their money over. So you can't sit on it forever. The second piece of it, when you come in and you buy a new uh, multifamily property, uh, an apartment complex, 
you're going to remember we're talking about rehab dollars you're going to pretty it up you're going to address some of the deferred maintenance and so let's say you paint it in year one you put new roofs on it and everything there there is a life span for all of these things once you buy you fix a lot of things up usually about year three to year five you're going to have to start readdressing some of these capital projects some of these big major systems are going to have to be looked at again maybe you're going to have to start doing some repairs to the parking lot a parking lot just repair jobs each year could be ten to twenty thousand dollars if you have to resurface it for some reason that could easily be fifty to a hundred thousand dollars so you spend a lot of rehab money up front to make it better to clean it up to repair it, but then about three to five years later, you're gonna to have to start revisiting a lot of these things again. And that's the time when people will look to sell. They don't wanna go out and raise a bunch more money from their investors that have already put a lot of money into this thing. They just sell, get money back into the investor's hands and turn around and put it into the next property. Yeah, I mean, you get the velocity of capital, right? If, if you're looking at IRR as your metric of return on investment, which I think is really, one of the worst metrics you could look at because it's the most easily juiced by anybody who's trying to do a deal, honestly. Um, then, you know, every year that IRR goes down, right? And so five to seven years, you get in there, you, you add the value, you take some cash flow, you flip it for a higher value, hopefully. And that, that's about when you can maximize the returns for your investors and then you move on to the next project. Um, I mean, if I'm going to talk bad about IRR, I'm going to tell you too what what I prefer to pay attention to: annualized cash on cash return and equity multiple. Because it, you know it all comes down to the, the the amount of time that you do a project, right? I mean, I could give you a 50 IRR, but if I'm you know you give me a hundred thousand dollars and I give you you know and it's a one year deal, it's it's very different than you know, $100,000 over seven years. It's just, I don't know, there's there's easy ways to juice that. You could have zero cash flow the entire project, and I could still get you a higher IRR based on the sale. So, you know, th but that's why I like equity multiple, annualized cash on cash returns. Right, so um, let's talk about IRR. A lot of people are listening going, okay, I've heard the term, or some people are saying, I don't even know what the hell that is. I've never heard that. So it's internal rate of return. And don't ask me to break it down scientifically because it's complicated. <laughs> Nobody really that I know can do it. I'm sure there are a lot of brilliant people listening that go, oh, it's just, let me kind of give you a It's almost minutes. impossible to do by hand. It's, oh, it's exactly. incredibly difficult. Right. So the IRR was designed basically to compare like types of investments. If I invest this much money in this project or this much money in this project, what's going to give me the best return of, uh, on my money? Over time. So, Right. An it's, IRR is supposed to uh, judge your return based on the time value of money and compounding. That's what it's supposed to be taken into consideration. Again, I know it as a, uh, as a macro or a formula in a spreadsheet. Don't ask me to calculate it. I know how to set up the table. I know how to put in the proper formula at the end to get the right answer. But that's what an IRR is. And where an IRR really comes in handy for me. Now, all of us have our own thought. Tyler, you don't like the IRR. I kind of like it more than you. Some people, it's all they care about. Yep. Totally fine. We all have our own metric that we want to see. That's why when I do a syndication that I bring to market, I always show them four returns. I show them the cash on cash, the total return, which is kind of also the equity multiple, the average annualized return, and the IRR, because different investors have different metrics that are important to them. For an IRR on for me is 
anytime there's a very, very large value add component or it's a development where we're going to make some cash and cash returns while we hold it. But the big thesis is uh, on this one is to sell it and get a huge return when we sell because we increase the value so dramatically by taking a beat to hell property and turning it around, getting better tenants in there, getting higher rents for those uh, for those units. So when you're dealing with things like that with a very large value add component, IRR takes that into consideration because you get this huge chunk at the very end. Like you said, the longer it takes you to recognize that huge chunk at the end, if I can get you a $5 million profit at the end of year two with my value add, or it takes me 10 years to get that same $5 million profit, the time value of money, which is what IRR is measuring, it's just going to drag your IRR down because it took you longer to recognize the full return. So I hope that helped people. That's a very hard concept for most people to understand, but that's kind of sort of what an IRR is all about. Yeah, the internal rate of return, I think, the, you know, the gosh, it's so difficult. And honestly, for years, I just didn't pay attention to it. Um, but when you get into syndication, there you have investors that that's just that's all that they look at. So you really have to learn to understand it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to try and start to explain how I look at it in my head. And I feel like I would probably just confuse people. So we're just going to not do that. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about internal rates of return, go to Google. Um, Bruce, as far as like back of napkin numbers go, when you're looking at a project, is there a percent that you say, okay, uh, you know, I'm probably going to need a 20% down payment and 5% and everything else. And so I need to be able to bring 25% to the table for this deal. So like, you know, going back to your $20 million example, you know, I'm going to have to bring 5 million. I'm gonna have to raise $5 million. Is that kind of like, do you have a back of napkin number like that? I do. Um, now on your first property, what I tell people, <clears throat> excuse me, is you're probably gonna have to come out of pocket 35 to 40% on your first deal. Now you might get lucky and get something that you only have to come out of pocket 25 to 30%. But remember, I told you in most markets that I'm looking at right now, the average down payment is 30%. Now, as prices get higher and higher and higher, that's going to go to 35 and 40 percent of, you know, before too long. I'm, I'm certain of it. But right now I'm seeing about 30 percent as average, sometimes a little better, sometimes a little worse. So if it's going to be 30 percent for the down payment, your closing costs could run you 3 percent. So now you're at 33 percent. Your rehab could cost you another three to four percent. Um, and there's another piece that we haven't talked about. That's operating capital. So all those things added up. Your first deal is likely going to cost you 35 to 40% of the purchase price to take down. So if you're trying to buy a million dollar property the first time out, you're probably going to have to come out of pocket somewhere between three and $4 million. So yeah, that's steep to think, man, I got to come up with almost half the purchase price. Yep, you do. But that's why you have good underwriting software, a, a good uh, spreadsheet to make sure that you plug all the numbers in the right places to make sure you're thinking of everything. So. You know, we talked about what the, the rule of thumb is for the overall cash raise, but let's finish up the last piece, and that's operating capital. And operating capital basically is your working capital, your ready, readily available cash in a bank account, in my operating account for that project that I use to write the bills on a monthly basis. It really comes in handy at the beginning. Like, let's say that you take over a project and you haven't started collecting rents, but you have some bills that you have to pay before you start getting your rent. So let's say you don't, uh, you take over on the, the 5th or the 10th. 
the previous owner has collected most of the rent by the time you get it. And so now you're not going to collect any rent for maybe two to four weeks. Well, until those rent payments start coming in, there's probably going to be a few things that you have to spend money on at the beginning. So that's where operating or working capital comes in very handy. But I use it as a threshold, not to fall below, because I always want to have reserve money in my operating account to make sure that if something weird just pops up out of the blue that I did not expect, I always have a safety net sitting there. So can my- you can you elaborate on the difference between operating capital and reserves because we were talking about that this morning we've got we you know we saw a group get into into trouble with this where they put all of their money into reserves and didn't consider operating capital but i mean i would imagine for for somebody that's just just now looking at this you would look at those and go how are those not the same thing what's the difference okay so reserves is a very large bucket to me reserves is where i'll put my rehab money Right. So the money that I didn't get rolled into my loan to do some of the deferred maintenance rehab projects that I need to, I will put that in the reserve account. I will usually always. So I have on every property that I do, I always have three accounts, one for security deposits, whether your state legally forces you to have a separate account for those, you damn well better. You're just asking for huge problems if you don't segregate your security deposits for your tenants into a a separate account that you do not touch until they move out. And if you have to write a check back to them because they left the property uh, in good condition. So I have uh, a security deposit account. I have an operating account and I have a reserve account. The reserve account will hold my operating capital because I can move it over like, you know, instantaneously. It's within the same bank system. Um, I will have that there and I'll have all of my rehab money put in that same account. So the difference between operating capital and reserves, reserves, again, will have a lot to do for me anyway. Everybody can run it however they want. That's the way I do it. I put my rehab money in that account as well. Um, And I have my operating capital. My goal for uh, operating capital, my underwriting parameters are I want one month's operating expenses, including my debt service. So all the expenses it takes to run this property on a day-to-day basis, plus my debt service, which is principal and interest. So one month's worth of all those expenses I want as my operating capital, right? I don't ever want to drop below that. If I do temporarily, because I did have to dip into that reserve, you know, because it is still somewhat of a reserve, it's your safety net. Um, I need to bump that up as quickly as I can by maybe not sending out as much distribution on the next quarter because I got to bump my reserves back up to an acceptable level. The other piece of this that so many people don't understand, they don't think about, they don't consider, there's something that I call negative carry. And what negative carry is, let's say you buy a property that's 50% occupied or you buy like what we do, we buy a lot of totally vacant commercial properties right now. Well, there's nobody in there, so there's nobody paying rent, so you're going to lose money until you get it filled up because you still have to pay taxes. You still have to pay insurance. You still have to pay landscaping, keep the lights on, um, property management. There's all kinds of bills that just because nobody's living there, you still have to be paying those bills on a monthly basis. That loss until you become break even, that's considered negative carry. So let's say it takes you a full year and a half to get something built and leased up over that year and a half you have to figure out with spreadsheets usually you're going to figure out and chart this out how much you think you're going to lose every single month until you hit profitability 
whatever that total is for that 12 to 18 month period, you had better raise money for that. You don't just get to go to the bank. Oh, we didn't have any profit this month, so I'm not going to pay my. No, they're not going to let you do that. You have to raise money to make all those payments while you don't have enough profit. That's called negative carry. The deal that you're talking about, Tyler, that's where they made a mistake. They had basic reserves or operating capital, but they did not have anything accounted for for negative carry. So this thing that they this project that they did, it was going to take them nine to 12 months to lease this thing up. Well, how are they going to pay the bills until they're profitable? They had nothing raised for it. Nothing that that can't happen. It's impossible. The property goes under. So unfortunately, what when people get into this situation, what they end up doing, you'll have people in the GP or sometimes they'll reach out to the limited partners because they're stuck and they have no option. They got to go back for more money. So it's a really bad situation to put yourself in. And it's just asking to lose your property. So be sure your operating capital is one month's debt service and operating expenses. That's my rule of thumb. You can have whatever you want. I think that should be a minimum, but it also needs to encompass all of your negative carry because you have to have money to pay the bills until you're profitable. So that that's the last of the four buckets that I really look at to decide how much I need to raise. You never want to find yourself in a cash call. I mean, that's one of the worst places that you can be as a GP. You will lose your investor's trust. Uh, it's just, it's not a good... It's not a good scenario for anybody. Um, I would say on the, you know, so so Bruce's metric is obviously for a, a relatively stabilized multifamily asset. So, you know, when we're underwriting development projects or, uh, you know, heavy value add commercial properties, we it's, it's, there's not really a good rule of thumb, right? Because it takes, you got to figure out, okay, how long is it going to take? for this development to happen. And then we've got to figure out what are all the expenses that we're going to go through in that time period. So, you know, the provisionary, we acquired it already. Um, and, you know, we've got a, a note that we're paying and taxes and insurance, and but we haven't even broken ground yet. So we, we had to, you have to go through and break down every single one of those expenses over 18 to 24 months to figure out what your carry costs need to be. And so, like Bruce said, I mean, it's it's critical that you have a very good spreadsheet that helps you do all of that. Uh, you know, shameless plug, Bruce's uh, multifamily underwriting spreadsheet. There's a link in the, the show notes below. Um, it covers all of those buckets so that you don't miss anything, right? I mean, it walks you through each step of the underwriting process to make sure that you're accounting for everything from, you know, interest to pest control. And that you don't want to forget anything, right? Because the last thing you want to do is, you know, again, have to go back for a cash call. Right. And on the spreadsheet, it's got everything figured out for you. There's lots of uh, formulas and calculations that it's all doing in the background for you to make sure you do this right. If you don't mess up the, the spreadsheet, a spreadsheet is as good as the person using it. There are a lot of unprotected cells. If you start screwing stuff up in protected cells, they're protected, but you can still get into a protected cell as far as I could tell. Now, I'm not, you know, deeply versed in PowerPoint. I mean, not PowerPoint, but Excel and Google Sheets. I know what I need to know for my own benefit. There's probably a way to lock a cell that nobody can get into it ever for any reason, but I, I haven't figured it out if there is. 
But if you start getting into these cells that are formula cells or populated from some other spot in the spreadsheet, you're going to screw this thing all up. So you got to be very, very careful. But so talking about that, and you mentioned overrays on your, your capital raise, how much? Well, I want to talk about that a little bit now. So the overrays for me comes in two different buckets. I will overraise for my rehab and overraise for my uh, negative carry. So let's say I think I'm going to lose a million dollars the first year while I get this property leased up, filled up, and turn a profit. It's going to take me a month to start generating free cash flow. So in that year, I think I said month, but in that year that it takes to get there, I got to figure out how much that loss is projected to be. Now I'm always going to be conservative. So my spreadsheet has, what is the loss? What's the sum of that loss for the year multiplied by 1.2? I always want 20% uh, extra fluff um, contingency money, because what if something goes wrong that I didn't uh, project accurately? That's And things happen. go You're wrong. Gonna, yeah. Right. Things are going to go wrong. They do for everybody. They always will. Your goal is to try to minimize the surprises the best you can, but there's always going to be a surprise that comes up. So whatever the negative carry is, the spreadsheet will factor that and add 20% to it. But then on the rehab front as well, on rehab, let's say I do the initial property tour with the broker. I come back and I think, okay, I think it's going to take about $400,000 in rehab dollars to fix all the things that need to be fixed because they're broken or in, you know deferred maintenance or all the things that I want to do to pretty it up to make it more valuable. The landscaping, um, maybe you want to pretty up the pool area, maybe you want to redesign the leasing office, whatever. All that comes up to say $400,000. I'm usually going to add $200,000 to that. And they were saying, oh, that's ridiculous. That's 50% more, right? My goal when I buy these properties, I want to make an offer. And let's say I offer $10 million to buy this property. I go in and I start doing inspections after I get it under contract. And I find some things that I didn't think were going to be there, right? So there's an extra $100,000 in stuff that I found. I thought the foundations were in perfect shape. I find out two of the 20 buildings are leaning a lot more than I thought they were. Cause I had a structural engineer come out and they told me about all this. So I get that bid back and it's a hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, Oh my God, I thought it was going to be 400. I have in my numbers to raise 400. Oh, I have to go back and retrade or renegotiate that deal for another hundred thousand dollars off. So now I got to go back to the seller and say, look, I can't give you $10 million for this. I can only give you 900, uh, 990,000. No, Nine million. <laughs> nine million nine hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, nine million. It helps if I'm whiteboarding behind. Man, you really do need some head. coffee. <laughs> um, but, well, I was so, just bragging on you like two shows ago how good you are at just doing numbers in your head. <laughs> yeah. So then I got to come out of pocket uh, that hundred thousand dollars or get it retraded. That's why I come out of. I mean, that's why I over raise. If yeah. I think the the construction in the rehab is going to be four hundred thousand, I'm going to bring in six hundred thousand. Sometimes even more than that, because I know there are going to be things that I don't find even during my inspections. I might not find things until I own the property and I'm actually seeing the property live and breathe. If I don't have enough money raised, well, what am I going to do? You know, first of all, let's go into the negotiation part when you're trying to close the property. If I go back to the, the seller and say, look, I need to get $100,000 credit or I can't buy this property, they're going to be pissed. You're showing you don't have your shit together. 
you're pissing me off. You're irritating me. We had an agreement to buy it for $10 million. Now you're going to try to buy it for $100,000 less. See how I did that that time? I didn't try to do the math. Um, <laughs> but you're just going to irritate them. So I always bring extra money to the table. And I tell people when I'm buying from them, when I'm well, when I'm bidding to be the person that buys it from them, I am raising significantly more than I think I need because I do not want to come back and renegotiate with you. And that goes a long, long way. So that's why I'll always overraise for my rehab and I will always overraise if I'm in a negative carry situation. Always. It's it's better to be conservative on your underwriting and miss out on a deal than to get too aggressive with your underwriting and get stuck in a really bad deal. Yep. Um, so, I mean, that's, that, that's the philosophy that I take with that. So, uh, Bruce, I think for the next episode, we've been talking about doing this for a while, but I feel like you know that's kind of the next step in this little saga here. Let's dive into your underwriting spreadsheet and, okay. and show people how that works. Because I've done a, a screen share on how to use the commercial version of it, but we haven't done one for multifamily yet. And so after talking about the cash raise and everything that you need to take into account, I think it just makes sense to do that next. Yeah, so, you know, the full course is really it's long there's a lot to go into but what we'll do yeah we'll just give a high level view of what all the things are and you might not use our spreadsheet totally fine you're going to use your own but they're all made up of roughly the same component so we'll go through what all the different things are that you need to be thinking about in an underwriting how to find those numbers how to come up with those numbers so yeah we'll do that that that's going to be a, that'll be a really good one especially for the type b personalities the engineering spreadsheet brains listening that'll help a lot yeah, it helps me keep my thoughts organized because there's so, I mean there's so much it, like there's there are so many details in every single project and and if you're anything like me, you know, I'm I'm high level. I'm big picture. I, I don't have time to think about like, oh yeah, we should have accounted for pest control. Um, so the, the spreadsheet makes sure that you do that. Um, well, don't forget, join us live every Friday, 10 a.m. Central. Uh, come in, heckle me and Bruce. Uh, ask your questions if you have anything about commercial or multifamily properties. And next week, uh, like we said, we will be talking about underwriting multifamily. We'll be diving into Bruce's spreadsheet. If you're listening on the podcast, I would still tune in. It's going to be very valuable just talking about what each metric is and how we account for it. So we will see you guys next week. Well, hang on. Like, subscribe, oh. and share, right? Like, subscribe, and share. I hope we're providing value that you you guys find a lot of value in, right? So if you do, please share this. Subscribe to it. Keep on top of it with us. Yeah. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with a good friend. See you guys next Friday.